And welcome back to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. At the top of the second hour, I always do my cruise through the news. I will tell you also that all of the articles I speak about in the show, I post on our website, americacanwetalk.org. You can go there, read all the articles, um, and you can go to hear past interviews also um, of anybody who's ever been on the show and uh, if you're not watching on facebook live you can scroll down and watch old shows um we just i my real earnest love in this whole reason to do radio in my life uh is to engage in the, in the political conversation about the goodness and greatness of america not perfect always needing to be uh, worked on to make a more perfect union and all that but it's a great country with great values and our job as citizens is to preserve this country um, I also want to mention at this time, just to say thank you to our sponsor, America Can We Talk is sponsored by GC Works, which is a Dallas-based company that performs research in advanced technology and delivers innovative approaches to the oil and gas industry. Could not do the show without them. Okay, here's my cruise to the news for the week. Okay, so I, I thought this, I could not tell if this guy was kidding or not kidding, but there's a guy in Holland who is 69 years old and he is petitioning because he wants to legally lower his age to 49. He's saying when he fills in the questions on the, I guess, dating apps or wherever it is, that when he says he's 69, he can't find the people he wants to find. So he says if people can change their gender, change their race, change their ethnicity, lie about their ethnicity and claim there's something else, why can't he be 69? Why isn't, can he just say, well, you know, I'm 69, but I hereby declare myself 49. Pretty funny. Um, I, I assumed he was kidding, but someone told me he might have been serious. I don't know. Anyway, this whole notion we're in this uh, suspending reality argument and so many things uh, in the American culture, in the world's culture, where we just try to uh, deny reality. And so that that was pretty funny. Okay. Next thing I want to hit. Um, so uh, President Trump has been actually a surprisingly and amazing protector of religious liberty in America. He issued final rules this week, I think just yesterday, uh, protecting religious groups like Little Sisters of the Poor from having from being required to fund abortions. This has been an ongoing issue. You know, the Obama administration and generally speaking, the American left so intolerant of, of religious freedom. So uh, and they after actually went after the Obama administration sued a Catholic uh, nuns. I think it was a home called with uh, run by the Catholic nuns called Little Sisters of the Poor and uh, sued them because they weren't covering abortions in their um, health care policy, in their in their um, health insurance. And so Trump has um, signed an order saying, no, actually, we're not going to make them do that. This is a good thing. Um, I also uh, the story I was mentioning in the last segment, just to be really uh, to hone in this point. Trump, President Trump has not yet issued this order related to the caravans. He's done a proclamation. He may do an order. But there was a really great article. I, I think it's up on our website, americacanwetalk.org, uh, about, uh, by Andrew McCarthy at National Review. He's basically saying, you know, the effort of the judges in this country, the, there will be a judge who will immediately thwart 
President's Trump, President Trump's effort to control this invasion from the southern border, these these uh, these uh, caravans, he, there will be some judge who will say, oh, he can't do that. And he wrote really well about it. So I wanted to encourage you to read that. Um, there was also, you know, this um, the sanctuary city thing that goes on and on, sanctuary state thing. There was an illegal alien uh, who was actually arrested on domestic violence charges in New Jersey. And the ICE officials became aware that this individual in New Jersey named Luis Rodrigo Perez was in the country illegally. So they, the federal immigration officials, told the New Jersey authorities this guy is in the country illegally and they requested a detainer so they could deport him. Requested the state of New Jersey, which is, as you might imagine, a sanctuary state, or at least a sanctuary city. I think it's a sanctuary state. I said, you know, can you hold on to the guy because we need to deport him. And New Jersey wouldn't do it. Let him go. Let him go. And he then, he's a native of Mexico. So he went on then to travel to the state of Missouri earlier this month where he murdered three Americans. And, you know, I know that the left always has the argument, well, he didn't murder him because he's an illegal alien. And why are you trying to draw a connection between those two things? The fact is, lawlessness has consequences. This is why the sanctuary city thing is a really important issue. It's an important issue to keeping Americans safe. Those three people in Missouri did not need to die, but they did because they had uh, this guy was still in the... um, you know, still in uh, the country and not deported as he would have been. Okay, our socialist friend, uh, this woman who ran and she won, she's going to become a member of the U.S. Congress. Last name, Ocasio-Cortez. We've talked about her on the show many times. She surprised a long-term Democrat incumbent from uh, lower New York uh, in the U.S. Congress, beat him in a primary. It's a, it's a you know, carved-out, gerrymandered Democrat district. So she won. Ocasio-Cortez she is complaining that she's realized she can't afford to get an apartment in Washington. I mean, she's complaining about that she needs more money from, I don't know who, who, I mean, taxpayers, uh, you know, her district. I don't know. But this is a woman so economically clueless. In fact, I have a list of seven quotes by her that I'm, I mean, I'm, I realize it sounds mean. I don't want to sound mean. But if you really live in America and embrace socialism, it's because you have no economic clue. And, he, and she's going to be in Congress passing laws that affect you. I'm Debbie Georgettis. This is America Can We Talk. Come back. Facebook Live in four minutes. Be right back. Our nation faces a choice. The path of big government based out of Washington or the unique brand of liberty and prosperity enjoyed here in Texas. For 27 years, the Texas Public Policy Foundation has helped leaders in the Lone Star State prove that fiscal restraint and small government can deliver opportunity and prosperity for all. The Texas Public Policy Foundation promotes and defends solutions here and around the country based on liberty, free enterprise, and personal responsibility. Whether informing the national 
national debate on property rights, energy, taxes, education, or criminal justice, the foundation works to translate ideas into real change. The Texas Public Policy Foundation does not accept government funds or contributions to influence the outcome of its research. It is supported by thousands of people like you who are concerned about the future of our country. You can help Texas remain strong as the beacon of liberty in America. Visit TexasPolicy.com to learn more. Our military and veterans have served all of us, defending our nation whenever and wherever duty calls. But at home, when their families need support, they know they can turn to Operation Homefront for help. Operation Homefront provides military families with critical financial assistance, transitional and permanent housing, and family support programs throughout the year to help prevent their short-term needs from turning into long-term struggles. When you support Operation Homefront, your donation will make a real difference because 92% of their expenditures go directly towards programs that our military families need most. Each year, Operation Homefront serves thousands of military families, families in your community, helping wounded veterans transition to civilian life, helping military families pay overdue bills when their loved ones deploy overseas, and helping them through their short-term struggles. Make a difference today and help serve America's military families. Visit OperationHomefront.org. That's OperationHomefront.org. If you want to get at the issues that really matter for women and men, Go to IWF.org. That's the Independent Women's Forum. IWF is all about increasing the number of American women who value free markets and personal liberty. IWF's motto is all issues are women's issues. They bring a fact-based approach to politics, policy, and culture. When the left tried to peddle a phony war on women, IWF shot back with facts and figures. American women aren't victims in need of ever-increasing government protection. And IWF doesn't think things are perfect, but they believe that individual liberty is the key to prosperity and fulfillment. Along with their sister organization, Independent Women's Voice, IWVoice.org, which is a leader in the fight against Obamacare, they offer policy papers, op-eds, and a popular blog on issues of the day. So visit IWF at IWF.org. That's IWF.org. America faces unprecedented threats to our national security. The Center for Security Policy, based in Washington, D.C., is a national leader focused on the organization, management, and direction of public policy coalitions to promote U.S. national security. The Center is a special forces in the war of ideas dedicated to identifying opportunities and challenges likely to affect American security and acting promptly to ensure that they are the subject of focused national examination and effective action. The Center enlists support from executive branch officials, key legislators, and other public policy organizations and brings these teams together to develop and shape policies that will keep America safe. Check out centerforsecuritypolicy.org for the latest news and developments brought to you by America's leading security experts. Becoming and remaining informed is one of the best ways every citizen can be a part of the mission to keep America safe. That's centerforsecuritypolicy.org. Welcome back to America Can We Talk. You know, I have one more story I was going to do in the cruise to the news. I'm going to mention it now because it ties in well with something really, uh, it's a more serious and kind of largely ideological point I want to talk about in this segment. 
But the other story I didn't get to, and just to briefly share it with you. So at the, um, you know, in our academic institutions, we've talked about many, many, many times, you know, there's just a radical left bent, intolerance for right wing views, intolerance for dissension, no diversity of ideas ever, ever permitted. But this thing I want to tell you that happened at Berkeley, this is the UC Berkeley Student Senate. And in the UC Berkeley Student Senate, uh, there was a... um, uh, there was a proposal in the student Senate uh, that essentially related to uh, transgenderism. And it was something about supporting transgender rights. So one student uh, did not vote for it. She abstained. And then she um, abstained from voting for uh, to supporting a transgender rights uh, in, in a vote last week. Uh, and then she actually, uh, perhaps unwisely, took a moment to explain her thinking. She didn't say I hate them. She didn't say, I think this is not a good move. But it doesn't matter what she said. The point telling you this is that the American college campuses are so left, not just left wing, so intolerant. They are, this is Berkeley, the home of the free speech movement, the place that everyone points to and says, well, that's where we really reasserted in America. In the 1960s, we got back to free speech and we asserted its importance This young girl at Berkeley who just dissented from a transgender rights vote in the student Senate, uh, there was actually a petition on campus. More than a thousand students signed it demanding she resign from student government or else face a recall. Hundreds of people packed the Senate meeting on Wednesday of this past week to insist that she be kicked off student Senate. On social media, she was labeled a horrible person and a mental imbecile. Her campus political party severed ties with her. In the Daily Californian, UC Berkeley's storied student newspaper ran an editorial critical of her statements and refused to publish her written defense. And this is a great segue to talk about what the real point I want to hit tonight before we get to uh, Dinesh D'Souza coming on in the next segment. What you are seeing on display in the UC Berkeley campus is not merely intolerance of diverting, you know, divergent viewpoints. It is not merely that. It is the left-wing anti-American mindset that has overtaken the Democrat Party in Washington has overtaken left-wing America. They do not think they should ever have to be tolerant of anything that they don't like. It is not mere intolerance. It is tyranny. Tyranny. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're looking at in this country is tyranny. This is one little story from Berkeley. Let me share another one. You probably heard what happened at Tucker Carlson's house this past week. Uh, Antifa, the radical fascist group Antifa, formed to be opposed to to fascism, and they are themselves fascist. We'll be talking about that with with, uh, Dinesh D'Souza. They came outside Tucker Carlson's house. He wasn't home. Uh, his wife was home alone. They showed up on his front porch, front yard, yelling and screaming, banging the door, actually cracked the front door of their house and chanting, we know where you live. 
you're not safe here. And in fact, some of these chants, I mean, they tie into something else that's been happening on the, on the academic cam- campuses. But here is the language of these, these uh, protesters outside Tucker Carlson's house. They're called smash racism of all absurdities. They, they think they're doing good. But we will fight. We know where you sleep at night. And that says each night you remind us that we are not safe. Tonight, we remind you that you're not safe either. These people have taken this idiotic mindset rampant on American college campuses where they have safe spaces so you never have to hear something that might hurt your feelings. And now they're taking it into mainstream, or in their demented minds, mainstream political activism. They think you get to go to someone's house and and scare the family and pound on his door and chant and tell him he's not safe because he said, because things he says politically, viewpoints he holds politically make them feel not safe. And one of these, and none of them were arrested, which is ridiculous, but one of them was interviewed, of course, anonymously in the Washington Post and told the Washington Post reporter that they were offended by Tucker Carlson calling the caravan coming up from Honduras an invasion. That Tucker Carlson had gone along with Trump's you know, characterization of the caravan as an invasion. And this made them feel unsafe. And they had members of their group who felt unsafe because of their ethnicity and national origin. And I'm getting around this point. I want to make, whether it is the judges in the courts, in the federal courts in this country, who will not follow federal law, who will strike down President Trump's uh, executive orders, the previous orders related to the refugees, where they had to get all the way to the Supreme Court before they could find judges who would follow the law. The judges who have been striking down the refugee orders along the way, those same judges are going to be looking at this upcoming executive order related to requiring the uh, caravan to enter through our, our official ports of entry and not just wander across the border. Those judges are part of this resistance. They are not serving as federal judges. They are not following their constitutional obligation to support the law of the land in this country, to support the Constitution. They are part of the resistance. The conduct of Jim Acosta and CNN, this is the resistance. And folks, this is today's Democrat Party. This is the leadership of today's Democrat Party. It is not a few extremists. You don't hear one Democrat in Washington, despite the language of Maxine Waters, despite the uh, just obnoxious behavior of numerous leading Democrats in the U.S. House and U.S. Senate. You don't hear one of them condemning the caravan, condemning Tucker Carlson's house being attacked, condemning these Antifa people surrounding Mitch McConnell in a restaurant. I don't know where that happened. Surrounding Ted Cruz and his wife in a restaurant in Washington. None of them condemn the fascist conduct of the American left. They have the American left has bred this conduct, this attitude, this mindset for decades that says you shouldn't have to listen to someone you don't like. You shouldn't have to hear an opinion. You are entitled to shut somebody down if they dare say something that you don't agree with. You can go to their house and threaten their family. So we had the uh, the attack on uh, Tucker Carlson, the judges uh, participating in all this. And this leads to something I want to hit on. And I put this in our 
I'm pretty sure it's up on our website today. Um, but, you know, the, the UC Berkeley, same thing, this transgender and this one student who had a differing view and was and basically they're trying to drive her. They'll probably drive her off the campus. She'll be afraid to be there. But I want to tell you, this ties into something that I urge you to read. It's lengthy, but it's actually a pretty quick read. It's on my website, americacanwetalk.org. It's called The State of Hate. And it is a very lengthy piece published in the Washington Post this week. Part of what they're, the big point they're making is that the American left, and, and specifically in this case, the, the article, The State of Hate, they are talking about the Southern Poverty Law Center. As I always say in the show, what a nice sounding name. It sounds Southern and genteel and poverty and we care about poor people. The Southern Poverty Law Center is a radical left-wing Marxist organization that uses the tactic of labeling as hate any political viewpoint they don't like. They use both the labeling of people and groups and organizations as hateful. They use it as a weapon to silence people who dare to disagree with left-wing gospel in this country. They use it to frighten people from ever affiliating themselves, defending, speaking up for groups that have been labeled hateful. They label as hateful the Alliance Defending Freedom for defending people and their First Amendment right to practice their religion. They are intolerant of anything connected to free, the free exercise of the Christian faith. They label groups like Center for Immigration Studies trying to prevent, uh, you know, just messy, dangerous immigration policy. Center for Immigration Policy sets forth policy ideas for how to have orderly immigration. They're a hate group in the minds of the Southern Poverty Law Center. Now, Antifa, that actually surrounds and threatens people and shows up at their house at night and and participates in violent riots, Antifa is not a hate group. You see, when you're the Southern Poverty Law, they're fine. No, no problem with Antifa. No problem with Black Lives Matter. Big problem with any group that defends the idea of America, defends the uh, idea of uh, lawful and orderly immigration, that defends protecting America from bringing people who, here to this country who may hurt us, including the refugee orders, uh, the uh, refugee order ban that President Trump tried to put through. It's a great read. We're going to come up on a break. When I come back, we have Dinesh D'Souza joining us. You're going to love it on Facebook Live. Come back in four minutes. Be right back. Hi, this is Debbie Georgiatis. If you are listening to America Can We Talk, you know that my show is dedicated to preserving the exceptional idea that is America. I want to take a minute to tell you what I mean by that. Unlike almost every other country on the planet, America's culture, our very identity, has nothing at all to do with ethnicity, race, or national origin. Instead, America is all about ideas, including the most basic idea that each of us, simply because we were born has the God-given right to live out our individual version of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness within the guardrails of the Constitution and our laws. Preserving this requires patriots in every American generation to grasp the importance of this truth, to recognize and fight back against the subtle and not-so-subtle relentless attacks on America's liberty, and to speak up for and defend the unique culture of American-style liberty. 
The federal government spends $900 billion annually on anti-poverty programs. What has it produced? 75% of black children are born into fatherless homes. 43% of the prison population is black. The black poverty rate has remained at twice the national average. And cities like Oakland, Baltimore, St. Louis, and Detroit are in ruins. Instead of helping, bad policies and billions of dollars have spread a sickness in the black community. It's time for a cure. The Center for Urban Renewal and Education, CURE, led by President Star Parker, is addressing our nation's most critical problems in our nation's most distressed zip codes. CURE's mission is to fight poverty and restore dignity through faith, freedom, and personal responsibility. To find out more, to read about how CURE works, and how you can help, please visit urbancure.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. Together, you and I can cure America. America is greatly blessed by the men and women serving in our military who are defending us every day, making our freedom possible. Military families also serve, and they face hardships while dads and moms are far from home. Military families endure frequent moves around the country and overseas, requiring them to adjust to new schools and make new friends over and over. They also face anguish while their soldiers deployed overseas, often in harm's way. The Army Scholarship Foundation offers one way to help military families by providing academic scholarships to children and spouses of soldiers. And you can help. Visit ArmyScholarshipFoundation.org and consider making a tax-deductible donation to help a military family member pursue his or her educational dreams. Assisting military family members with their college education is a great way for all of us at home to say thank you to our military families for your service and sacrifice. Visit ArmyScholarshipFoundation.org and get involved today. The right to freedom of speech, to be who you are and to speak your mind, is a foundational American value enshrined in the First Amendment to our Constitution. And nowhere is that value more important than on America's college campuses. But too often on our campuses, unpopular political opinions or religious beliefs are met with censorship or even violence instead of honest dialogue and discussion. And Texas colleges are no exception. Schools like the University of Texas at Austin, Sam Houston State University, and the University of North Texas all place burdensome restrictions on free speech. That's why the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, FIRE, fights back against the censors to defend liberty on America's college campuses. Does your college or alma mater uphold our most cherished American value of freedom of speech? Find out by visiting thefire.org and consider lending FIRE your support. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie George Addis. I'm so glad you've tuned in tonight. And I believe we have online our guest for this segment, Dinesh D'Souza. Hello, sir. Hello. How are you? Good to be on the show. Hi, Dinesh. Good to talk to you. Okay, first of all, I'm so glad you could come on. And I mentioned to our guests before um, the last segment that you were joining us. Uh, as I think probably all of our listeners know, Dinesh D'Souza is a prolific author, writer, and filmmaker. And his latest uh, Dinesh D'Souza uh, book is called Death of a Nation, Plantation Politics and the Making of the Democratic Party. Um, and that was his the documentary film. And I will tell you, sir, we just bought the film. Uh, we... we 
we're not able to see it when it came out in theaters, but we just bought it and watched it at home. And I have a list of friends who want to borrow our, our uh, DVD, so we're going to be sharing it. So it's a great film. I wanted to start to ask you a simple question. There's a picture in the front that you kind of, it looks like it's a combination. It's, it's one face with Lincoln on one side and Donald Trump on the other. So well, why, why is that picture on the front? Well, the reason I did that is because I wanted to um, draw an analogy the situations facing Lincoln in 1860 and Trump today. There's actually quite an eerie parallel. Uh, In 1860, an outsider, a Republican, Lincoln, was elected in a close election, and all hell broke loose. And the rival party, which was the Democratic Party, would not accept the outcome. In the North, there were Democrats who actually called for Lincoln to be assassinated. That actually happened later. Uh, In the South, as you know, the Southern Democrats decided, let's break up the country. So all of this craziness was going on uh, over a major party's refusal to uh, live with Lincoln's successful candidacy. And the same has been true of Trump. We've seen abnormal politics in America since 2016. It still hasn't gone away. It doesn't show any signs of going away. We have also seen something of a secession of the American mind uh, in various incidents from the Kavanaugh hearings to other things. So bottom line is that there is, I don't think we can go back to the Reagan era to find a parallel to what's going on now. You have to go all the way back to 1860. I think it's a brilliant parallel. And I, again, our, to our listeners, you definitely, if you have not, you need to read the book. The book is wonderful, but you also need to get the, uh, the uh, documentary film uh, with Dinesh D'Souza's latest documentary film, Death of a Nation. It's really, you know, one thing I was thinking about driving here was trying to uh, capture a quick way to say it. It's a bit of a myth buster, myth buster. I mean, things you put in that book and movie that I think people have just accepted for uh, decades and the common uh, political understanding just accepts. I mean, one basic thing is that President Trump, more than any president I can recall, is being called a fascist. He's being called a fascist. And when you go through the roots of fascism uh, in, in your book and in the movie, uh, you just realize how absurd that is. I'd love to have you just describe a little bit how you went through uh, in your movie talking about the uh, the evolution of the concept of fascism, Mussolini and Hitler. Can you just enlighten our listeners with that? Yes. Uh, the allegation that Trump is a fascist or that fascism is a staple of conservatives or of the Republican Party, this all relies on a deep idea that long predates Trump, and it's the idea that fascism is on the right. Now, this idea is so pervasive. It is in our textbooks. It's on the History Channel. It's in Wikipedia. Uh, I learned it at Dartmouth as an undergraduate. I took it for granted to be true. Uh, but What I didn't realize is that all of this, this whole business of fascism being on the right, is an invention of progressive historiography post-World War II. Prior to that, everybody knew that fascism was on the left. All the fascists saw themselves as on the left. Mussolini, of course, was a Marxist. He was also the editor of the socialist magazine in Italy called Avanti. He started the first fascist regime in the world in 1922 in Italy. Hitler's party was called the National Socialist. German Workers' Party. Its platform was, you know, straight out of something that today we'd identify with Bernie Sanders, state control of the banks, state control of education, state control of healthcare, and on and on it goes. So part of this for me was in researching all this, a revelation to discover that we have been subject, we talk about fake news, we've been subject to fake history and fake scholarship. And I like to do the book and the movie as a one-two punch because 
the book lays out all the documentation in an irrefutable way, and the movie dramatizes the narrative on the screen so that you can not only understand it, but feel it and see it. And you did a wonderful job. I learned so much about Mussolini uh, from your, and actually now I'm blurring as the book and the movie, but the Mussolini development of things where he was a socialist, which I think most people would not have recognized, uh, known about him, and that he be- it morphed into something, and I've forgotten the term you used, but it was when, when he became, instead of an international socialist, a national socialist, and that became fascism. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, so what happened was that in the 19th century, Marx had predicted um, that there would be a communist revolution breaking out all over Europe. And when that never happened, the intelligent Marxists, including Mussolini, began to scratch their heads and think, why did it not happen? And they concluded that the reason is that Mussolini had focused on class as a basis of unifying people, but he never thought about nationalism, the fact that people love their own country. Uh, and Mussolini said, I saw in World War One that the British socialist fought for Britain and the German socialist fought for Germany. So basically, Mussolini said, we need a new kind of socialism that marries nationalism with socialism. Let's call it national socialism. So that's the, that's the origin of fascism. Fascism is the marriage between nationalism and socialism. Now you can see how absurd it is to call Trump a fascist. Yes, Trump is a nationalist. But so was Gandhi, so was Mandela, so was Winston Churchill, so was Abraham Lincoln. The only type of uh, social, the only type of nationalist we need to worry about is the nationalist who is married to socialism. That's the kernel of the meaning of fascism. I love that. And actually something else, I learned a lot from your book, and I'm kind of a student, I love history, and I learned so much. I did not know until reading this that um, FDR actually admired Mussolini that he, FDR, sent people over to study Mussolini's fascism, thinking maybe it was a good idea. So I found this in an obscure book by a very well-known historian, John Biggins, called Mussolini and Fascism. What's really interesting is that the progressives have been really clever. After World War II, they made sure that all of this, and by all of this I mean the mutual admiration society between the progressive Democrats in America and both Italian fascism and Nazism, all of this was swept under the rug. But yes, going back to the early 30s, FDR was an admirer of Mussolini. Mussolini was a fan of FDR. Um, the Nazi newspaper, the Volkischer Beobachter, was wildly praising FDR and the New Deal. Uh, why? Because they saw the New Deal as a form of American fascism. So all of this, the progressives realized after World War II that they go, if young people figured all this stuff out, we'd be finished. Uh, so let's, let's basically rewrite history here. Let's see if we can cunningly move fascism from the left wing into the right wing column. That way in the future, we can blame it on our adversaries. So we have all been subject to a massive intellectual con that has been put on by progressive historiography. I think that's the most, I mean, there are many impactful things. I can't wait to talk about to, with you about Richard Spencer, but um, back to this. I think that's the most astonishing thing. And as I say, I, I majored in, in government and college. I loved American history. I did not know to reading your book and watching the movie that this there was that love and fondness and connection between FDR and Mussolini. I mean, that just, that, that really, I can see why the leftists had to bury that the moment the war was over. My gosh. 
Well, here's the important thing is that people will see the stuff in the movie. And, and of course, when I talk about it on campus, you know, young people's eyes get very wide and their jaws drop open. And they think I must be lying because they think I must be giving maybe my version of history versus somebody else's version of history. And what I tell them is, no, I'm giving you the irrefutable facts in the historical record. All this stuff is out there with documentation in my book. Not a single scholar of any note has even questioned, let alone refuted any of it. So the bottom line of it is that what you have here, just as in, in, in news, we know that reporters spin the news to satisfy their own biases, to reinforce their own suppositions. And the same is true with scholars. I'm not saying they're openly lying. I'm just saying that they cover up facts that are inconvenient to them. They spin the story in such a way to make their adversaries look bad. That's human nature, but we shouldn't fall for it. I just love that. As I say, so much in your book is different from what people have learned in their history books, learned in school. You also talked, and we're going to come up on a break here. We only have about a minute in this segment. I want to hit the history of racism, how the ideas that the Nazis, in fact, we could probably do that in a minute. Tell a few of our listeners very quickly, in just like 30 seconds, the Nazis were using American Jim Crow Southern law ideas to come up with their treatment of Jews. Is that right? Yeah, we have a kind of mind-blowing scene in the movie where senior Nazis are drafting the Nuremberg laws, which make Jews into second-class citizens, and they're holding in their hands the democratic laws of the Jim Crow South. They're literally crossing out the word black and writing in the word Jew. Again, it is not known by any high school or by any college student, it's not taught today, that the Nazis didn't have laws that were just parallel. They actually got the scheme for the Nuremberg laws from the laws of the U.S. Democratic Party, and that's a fact. Dinesh D'Souza, you're awesome. Folks, if you're just tuned in, it's Dinesh D'Souza. We'll go zipping off to a break. If you're on Facebook Live, come back in four minutes. We'll be right back with more with Mr. D'Souza. Do you know that one in nearly five United States residents lives in an immigrant household? That we take in more than one million new legal immigrants every year? Studying the impact of federal immigration program is the mission of the Center for Immigration Studies, the nation's only think tank looking at the broad national effect of immigration policy. Whether it's on crime, welfare, national security, or the job market, CIS digs out information about immigration from government sources, translates it into English, and makes it available to the public, the news media, and policymakers in Washington. Check out its work at CIS.org. CIS makes the case for better enforcement against illegal immigration and lower levels of legal immigration in the future. Most other special interest groups pursue the opposite. The only thing standing between them and open borders is an informed public. Get informed and stay informed by visiting CIS.org. That's CIS.org. Have you heard of the Policy Circle? It's a national network of women who come together in neighborhood conversations to discuss the public policies impacting their communities. You can think of it as a book club, but instead of reviewing a book, members discuss public policy issues. Policy Circle members have access to membership-only resources and benefits that complement a thoughtful framework for women to come together and have fact-based discussions. From healthcare to poverty... From free enterprise to education, from fiscal responsibility to the First Amendment, we discuss the issues that shape America. Change starts with a conversation. 
Conversations happen when women across the nation are connected and engaged in their communities, openly sharing their views and taking a leadership role in policy dialogue on what human creativity can accomplish in a free economy. Are you ready to join a growing network of engaged women? To join or start your own policy circle, visit thepolicycircle.org today. That's thepolicycircle.org. Let me tell you about the group Vice President Mike Pence called the most effective grassroots pro-life organization in America. It's the Susan B. Anthony List, and they're the ones who are on Capitol Hill right now, day in, day out, to fight back against Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry. Every day in our nation, abortion takes more than 2,000 innocent lives, almost two every single minute of every single day. And Planned Parenthood is the largest abortion business in the country, committing one-third of all abortions. It's an unspeakable tragedy and a stain upon our nation and our humanity. And it's up to us to do something about it. This is your opportunity to join the team that's leading the charge to end abortion. Go to sba-list.org or Google Susan B. Anthony List now to learn more and start saving lives today. Our military and veterans have served all of us, defending our nation whenever and wherever duty calls. But at home, when their families need support, they know they can turn to Operation Homefront for help. Operation Homefront provides military families with critical financial assistance, transitional and permanent housing, and family support programs throughout the year to help prevent their short-term needs from turning into long-term struggles. When you support Operation Homefront, your donation will make a real difference because 92% of their expenditures go directly towards programs that our military families need most. Each year, Operation Homefront serves thousands of military families, families in your community, helping wounded veterans transition to civilian life, helping military families pay overdue bills when their loved ones deploy overseas, and helping them through their short-term struggles. Make a difference today and help serve America's military families. Visit OperationHomefront.org. That's OperationHomefront.org. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. We are speaking this evening with Dinesh D'Souza. It is about his latest documentary film and book, Death of a Nation, Plantation Politics and the Making of the Democratic Party. I did want to mention that I'm sure everyone listening already knows, but Dinesh D'Souza is the, you know, has over 15 nationally renowned books. He's uh, great, great films, 2016, Obama's America and America, Imagine World Without Her. His films have swayed voters. They have informed voters. This latest one, it's honestly just fun to listen to, but it's so uh, rich and and rich and, and really impacting very substantive issues facing America. And I want to turn to one of those now. So in America, we uh, have heard a lot about the argument that um, uh, relating to racism in this country. And I thought it was amazing. Um, in fact, I have your book open to that page to ask you about. You actually sat down with Richard Spencer, who is um, widely labeled as an alt-right racist. And I, what I love that you did, uh, Dinesh, is to go through very specific items that this is what conservative thinking is. Where are you on that? So what was your uh, overall take from him? Do you think it's fair that he's characterized as alt-right? Well, let's lay the background for this. You know, the 
uh, I have been able to document, I think beyond the shadow of a doubt, that the Democratic Party on the left, they are the party of, of, of racism. They're the party of the Democrats are the party of slavery, of segregation, of Jim Crow, of the Ku Klux Klan, of opposition to the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Uh, they were the Dixiecrat racists. And no, they never switched. They never became Republicans. That's a big lie. So all of this is right there in the record. Now, the left has kind of an escape hatch here. And they say, well, yeah, but what about today? Look at all the Ku Klux Klan guys. Look at all the white nationalists. They're all Trumpsters. Now, the first thing is that I wanted to really investigate this claim. And I, my suspicions were aroused by the fact that the organizer of the Charlottesville rally, the rally where the so-called white supremacists were seen wearing Trump hats, this guy was an Obama guy. His name is Jason Kessler. He's an Obama activist, a longtime Occupy Wall Street guy. And I thought, wow, how does an Obama activist become a white supremacist? Something seems really fishy here. And, of course, it is. Once I began to investigate the white supremacists, and I investigated about a dozen of the leading ones, I discovered all of them, every single one, has a deep history in the left. And then I realized something really bad is going on here. The media is putting out a, a scam. But let me expose the scam by bringing on stage in the movie uh, the poster boy of white supremacy, Richard Spencer. Let me just talk to him straight out, and let's see what his politics are, right or left. And I think it's, it's one of the most eye-opening scenes in the movie where over, over several minutes you begin to realize the dawning suspicion. Wait a minute. Here out of the horse's mouth we realize that this guy is not on the right. He agrees with nothing to do with the right. He hates Reagan. His favorite presidents are all Democrats. He calls himself a socialist. He wants nationalized health care. And on and on it goes. Bottom line of it, this guy is left. He's an old left. Racist. And then you realize that what, what we've been subject to from Charlottesville to the present is an elaborate media hoax, a hoax in which leading reporters knew that Jason Kessler was a leftist. They never bothered to investigate Richard Spencer's politics. Why? Because they were so eager to pin the fascist and racist tail on the Republican elephant that it was just the facts were just too inconvenient. And so I like, again, you know, if I had just interviewed him, Debbie, and put it in a book, uh, people would read it and they'd go, yeah, that sounds convincing. But to see it in the movie where you hear it coming yes. out of the horse's mouth, it's very eye-opening. It most certainly was. Among the many things he said in the movie, and I actually have the book in front of me, but... Just basic. First of all, thank you for that really wonderful history just laid out. Um, what in the book, when you're speaking with Richard Spencer, you ask him simple things like any conservative would know what conservatives or, or just patriot Americans believe. Uh, so all men are created equal, true or false. Spencer says false, obviously. I mean, he starts out with something that's a core founding of America idea, the uh, inherent equality of each of us. We don't have a right to life. No, we don't have a right to really anything. Um, American influence is bad around the world. It's just an astonishing, I mean, the, the word hoax is, I've used it in the show quite often to make reference to the Mueller investigation and, and you know, Trump-Russia collusion. But the whole concept that the ideology behind racism in this country, it, it's still utterly and only lives on the American left. It is truly an astonishing thing. Yeah, and the reason why my book is subtitled Plantation Politics and the Making of the Democratic Party is I think that the plantation still, even now, continues to define the Democratic Party. Of course, they don't have slave plantations like in the old days, and nor are their plantations exclusively confined to blacks. 
But it's not entirely wrong to describe today the black ghettos, the Latino barrios, the Native American reservations as all a sort of version of the old democratic plantation, because you see the same dependency, the same poverty, the same lack of advancement, the same complete reliance, you may say, on the on master, on the so-called big house, the same nihilism, the same broken families, and of course, the same party running the show, which is, of course, the Democratic Party. Which is, Lisa, is something I want to talk about. We just had our midterm elections, and I actually have been uh, railing about data relating to how women voted, um, which was sadly still <laughs> very, very gender gap. We're working on that. But um, with respect to black vote, you said something, um, I think, again, book or movie, but you were talking about how the black vote in America, which now overwhelmingly goes the Democrat Party, but that wasn't always the case. You said in 1932, two out of three blacks voted for the GOP. And then you went, is that not right? And then it went on to say somehow that has switched and the, and the black vote in America tends to go to the Democrat Party. But how'd they get them? Well, the, the significance of all this is that, is that the left puts out the idea that the black vote switched from Republican to Democrat because of civil rights. And this implies that obviously the Democratic Party must be the friend of civil rights because why else would blacks uh, switch to the Democratic Party? I show that the black vote switched to the Democrats not in the 1960s or 70s or 80s, but rather in the 1930s. And in the 1930s, the Democrats were explicitly and boastfully the party of the Ku Klux Klan and of segregation. So it can't be that blacks switched over because of civil rights. They did not. What did they switch over because of? And the answer is they switched over because of the material welfare benefits of the New Deal. Of course, it was the Great Depression. Everyone was hit economically very hard. And the fact that FDR was willing to drop some crumbs from the table, this was sufficient to get African-Americans to move over into the Democratic camp. So, yes, there was a black switch, but no, it had nothing to do with civil rights. I had not known that history either, that the big flip. I think I, I took notes from some, either from your movie or for, but 1932, two out of three blacks voted for the GOP. 1936, two out of three blacks essentially voted for FDR over the GOP candidate, over the New Deal. That, that's a huge switch, and that's many, many Americans. But um, I, I think the whole uh, battle we have in America today, I, I just think it's a, we're terribly, we have a lot, the picture being terribly divided, so much racism in this country. Or That is the argument of the American left, and I think it's actually used as a weapon to instill fear in people, you know, instill fear in, in people of color that there's rampant racism. And, and so come with us, the Democrat Party will take care of you. And I, I, I keep waiting for the day that more people find that kind of an offensive message. Well, they will. I mean, the thing is, remember, the Democrats dominate the megaphones of the, of the media and of Hollywood, and of academia. So they are getting a one-sided message out there. I honestly believe that if every African-American were to see just my last two movies, Hillary's America and Death of a Nation, and Death of a Nation, by the way, now in DVD, it's also streaming, so you can get it off iTunes or Amazon, you know, watch it at home. So it's really cool. But the good thing, I literally think that if if every African-American could see that movie, literally one half of them would get up and walk away from the Democratic Party right then. That's why the left really ignores these, these movies. They don't mention them. There's, there's no reference to the movie, even though it's in a thousand theaters out there. Uh, there's a kind of, you know, almost call it a left-wing boycott, because they know how powerful these messages are, and, if, and people have the ability to check out these facts and make sure that they're true. 
Absolutely true. Well, your book, uh, again, if you're just tuning in, I'm sorry for you, but we're speaking to Dinesh D'Souza. The book is Death of a Nation on my website, americacanwetalk.org. We have links to discussing this book and how wonderful it is. I urge if you haven't seen it to see the film. And Dinesh, I don't know if you remember this, but a few years ago in Dallas, you and your wife uh, spoke at something in Dallas. It was the oh, it was a power rally, uh, Dallas County Council power rally. I interviewed you and your wife on stage. I don't know if you remember that, but anyway. Anyway, Debbie, your I wife. Did. No, it was a lovely event. We remember it very well. In fact, we were chatting about it a little earlier in anticipation of coming on the show. Well, I'm glad to know that. I was so impressed because you both are such a tremendous, you both are such assets to America. I mean, when you tell these stories, well, the books you write and the films you do and the depth of information and the footnoting and the correcting of so much that is uh, just misrepresented to the American public, these are gifts to the American political conversation, to our country. And then Debbie, having her firsthand knowledge, understanding about the dangers and evil of socialism and recognizing the signs and trends here, you really, uh, you both are gift to America. Well, we appreciate it very much. Yeah, Debbie happens to be from Venezuela, which is the laboratory of socialism working, or I should say not working. Uh, and so it just so happens that she can speak with, you know, firsthand knowledge and also authority about how socialism, like literally, not only impoverishes, but kills. Absolutely does. And she's very eloquent doing so. Dinesh Souza, I just thank you so much. Thanks for calling in tonight. And thanks for joining me on my show. I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, folks, Dinesh D'Souza's movie, you have to see. If you have not seen this documentary, you've got to do it. Get the book. It's very readable, very fun reading. And you do, I I tell you, it's just eye-opening to recognize how many things you've been told. We didn't even get into it in this this interview, but he has a lot of detail in there relating to how we've been told that the, you know, well, maybe the Democrats today will say, well, you know, maybe, you know, years ago the Democrats were the party of slavery and the party of segregation, but then it switched and one thing he's, he has, I think, in both the book and the movie, it switched, meaning the Dixiecrats who went to Washington, two people, two, switched and became Republicans. The Democrat Party has been the home of racist, divisive, divided society since, the found, since their founding, and they still are the source of that today. And the information in this book The reason I encourage you so much to read it is because it really will help you feel like, you know, there's hope as you spread facts and spread truth. People should not want to buy in to what the left is selling this country. Um, And, you know, it's interesting. This is a battle that President Trump has because he has been labeled fascist and racist, all these things. And these are just horribly misused words, unacceptable in this educated country. We need to recognize the history of fascism and socialism and that leads us around to the greatness of America. Well, I never got to telling him there was a quote by Macron attacking Trump and anyway, lots of stories we can't get to tonight. So I'll tell you as I always do at the end of my show, this is the fastest and funnest two hours of my week. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. I do a podcast Wednesdays, 3 p.m. Central Time right here on Facebook Live at America Can We Talk. I'll be back next Sunday. I always encourage you to speak truth and speak up for America. Debbie Georgiatis, talk to you in a week. Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. To learn more or to contact Debbie, go to AmericaCanWeTalk.org. America Can We Talk, truth about America. America.